0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of Technology and Humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up.
1: We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today is Mark Bartholomew. Mark is a professor at the University of Buffalo School of Law. He writes and teaches in the areas of intellectual property and law and technology with an emphasis on copyright trademarks, advertising regulation and online privacy. His articles on these subjects have been published in some of the leading law reviews and his book Ad Creep, The Case Against Modern Marketing, was recently published by Stanford University Press. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, John. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So it's this recent book, Ad Creep, that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. Uh, this is a really rich and detailed exploration of the ethics and law of modern advertising. I think it sits well alongside some of the recent books on this topic as well. So, for example, Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants, is a detailed history, I guess, of advertising. Uh, yours is more of an ethical or normative take on, on the topic. To set up the issues addressed in your book, I'd like to just start with a story. And this is something I've used before in some of my writing, but it comes from another book by Matthew Crawford, The World Beyond Your Head, which also deals with a similar set of topics. And that book starts with Crawford telling the reader about a revelation he had one day while out shopping for groceries. He says that when he went to pay for them and he swiped his credit card on the machine and waited for the prompt to enter his details, he was surprised to find that he was shown advertisements while he waited for the prompt. And it struck him as amazing that somebody had decided that this moment, the moment between swiping the card and inputting the details, was a moment when they had a captive audience and that they ought to capitalize on it by pushing advertisings to them. So he suddenly noticed that these intrusions into his attention were everywhere and that virtually all spaces in modern life were being dominated by advertising. I think your book is based on a very similar revelation um, and it does focus in particular on how technology, politics and law have conspired to create the phenomenon of ad creep. Now, we're not going to be able to do justice to all of the ideas in your book, but I want to try and hit on the important ideas and arguments. And let me just start with a a general question, which is, like, what is ad creep as you understand it?
0: To to me, ad creep means that the incremental... Movement of advertising into new spaces. Uh, uh, it's it's a uh, it's a change in the number and, and nature of ads we're exposed to. And I, I use the term really to get across two things. So one is this sense of movement. You know, the the, the creep suggests movement. is encroaching on what might have been thought of the past as ad free or at least ad resistant territories. And then the second thing to get across with the term is it's, it's creepiness. When I talk to people about some of the new tactics that marketers use today or the new strategies, uh, often the response is, oh, that's creepy. Uh, people have this hedonic reaction to these things, but they also don't really interrogate it. And so a big goal of the book is to interrogate our feelings about this in a, in a deeper way than maybe we normally do when we're talking about advertising. <laughs>
1: Yes, I like that. So there's a kind of a double meaning to the term ad creep. It's both the movement and then the feeling that is created in in the subject of advertising. Uh, so you start with a bit of a history of advertising and its regulation, focusing in particular on the U.S., obviously, given that's where you're based, but makes sense, too, since I think a lot of modern advertising really emanates from the U.S. So maybe you could talk about the history of advertising and the way in which it's been regulated. and. In this respect, I'm particularly interested in how regulators and advertisers have perceived or understood customers and how that perception has altered and changed over the years.
0: Yeah, so for me, the history is really key. I I just like history in general. and It's a theme in my work. But when I was thinking about, well, how do we evaluate these new tactics of advertising? How can we think about... You know whether they should be regulated. Uh, history is a, is a reference; it offers a benchmark for what's possible when it comes to thinking about strategies for dealing with this this ad creep phenomenon. And so, in the history of advertising regulation, you know an important, you know, critical point here is how do we understand consumer capabilities? When will consumers be savvy and be able to avoid a trap? When will they be gullible and fall? prey to, you know, marketplace predators, you know, when are, when are we just out of our depth given the information asymmetries that sometimes favor advertisers and, and merchants? And so the history of advertising really shows an, an ebb and flow to visions of consumer capability. And often this these changes in how we view the consumer agency are tied to technological change. So in the early 1900s, all of a sudden, instead of buying your products at, you know, the local merchant, you could kind of poke around and inspect them and talk to the merchant uh, themselves about the products. We have mass trans- transportation and, and mass marketing and mass production, and it's no longer possible to really interrogate the, the provenance of your goods. And at that point, it took some time, but new regulatory structures were put in place because the consumer was just overmatched in this kind of a nationwide uh, uh, marketing culture. And so um, technology changes things and how we view consumers um, – when we when we go forward to a, a more modern story what i really see are two two particular views so the first view is that advertising particularly more modern advertising relies on emotion relies on uh, these information asymmetries to really instill exogenous preferences in people. You know, um, the economist John Kenneth Galbraith was kind of famous for articulating this view. We're, we're outgunned by a marketing machine that gets us to buy things that don't really make us any happier. The other view, and I'd say the more dominant view overall, and, and certainly the more dominant view uh, in the American legal system, is this idea of a of a rational almost hyper-rational consumer that reinterprets uh, appeals to persuasion and emotion as information right so they look at uh, some claim you know this is the best life insurance policy or or even things that aren't um, you know quite so opinionated you know this this uh this particular food will make you healthier And and what this view of the consumer says is, oh, consumers know that they can't trust this because it's not verifiable immediately. So they won't they won't trust this information, but they'll see just the fact that the the business has the resources to advertise as some positive information to show this is a business that might be worth their time and and money. Um, Another uh, trait of this hyper rational consumer under this view is that, well, everything's a. A trade-off, a rational choice. So, sure, advertising might have some negative effects. It might uh, harm your privacy. Um, it might uh, do other things to distract you from other things in life, but the the, the rational consumer can balance these trade-offs quite successfully. So we kind of have two views. One is we're, we're, we're subject to these persuasive forces that we can't resist. The other is, no, we can reinterpret these persuasive forces in a very rational manner and accept the best outcome for ourselves. These are the two views that I think are really competing for supremacy now the The last point I would make is that either view, whether you take the Galbraithian view of of being outgunned or you take the the more rational consumer view, either view says that. Well, if we could agree on a particular advertising strategy or scheme that manipulates consumers so that they can't use their rational faculties, that would be bad. It would pose a threat, and it would be something that we might have to deal with with a regulatory structure. They just really disagree on the likelihood or frequency of that kind of thing happening.
1: Yeah, and I suppose that then was my follow-up question was that how we view and perceive or understand the consumer then makes a big difference to what kinds of regulatory structures Need to be put in place. So, if we follow the Galbraithian view of the consumer as vulnerable to manipulation and persuasion, needs to be protected from the forces of advertising, that would seem to justify a more paternalistic, interventionalist approach. Whereas the alternative point of view, the more hyper rational consumer, that's much more laissez faire, hands off.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It really depends on just what you think the consumer can handle and there's some other things attached to this uh, also there's a concern whether oh, what's our faith in the ability of the government to deal with this maybe we have some second thoughts about advertisers but um if you're in a cultural moment where we're even more skeptical of the governments you know uh, informing our our consumers choices then you might say well I'll I'll take my chances with the advertisers but yeah an assessment of consumer capabilities is key
1: and is the history? Does the history tell a clear story that we've moved from one particular view to another? I mean, is it the case that we used to view the have this more paternalistic approach, you know, interventionist approach? The consumer needed to be protected, and we've moved towards a hyper rational view. Or is it the case that we just constantly fluctuate back and forth between these two poles?
0: I, I think uh, it's mostly like you say; it's an ebb and flow between the the poles, and a lot of that is due to technological change you know the disparities build up to a certain degree we say okay this is a situation where the consumer doesn't have enough agency here we need to kind of re-level the the playing field but i would argue that we are in a moment um where things have definitely tipped in favor of the the hyper rationalist view the view of of great consumer capabilities and so that's a recipe for very little regulatory response
1: and like when has that phase begun though this moment that you refer to uh, when does that originate
0: i would say that it started in the in the mid 1970s uh that was kind of the high watermark of what historians diagnose as the last um, uh, significant consumer movements, uh, and and at that point uh, there became to be a, a backlash. Actually, Ronald Reagan uh, made some of his some of his bones, some of his political popularity, kind of railing against consumer activists, saying, "You know, these consumer activists think you're too dumb to figure out how to buy a box of cornflakes on your own. We don't need these meddlers in there. We don't need this government overreach." You know, it was very much a vision of individualistic consumers being able to make their own choices in the marketplace without government intervention so when when uh, advocacy groups tried to inaugurate uh, protections against uh, sugary snack foods being sold to children during saturday morning cartoons back when they had saturday morning cartoons that really set up kind of a donny brook that was that that ultimately, the the anti-regulation um, folks, like Ronald Reagan, they succeeded, and the consumer movement hasn't hasn't recovered since then. So we've had not the political will to enact a lot of new consumer regulations, and at the same time, in in the scholarly realm, we've had a view of this rational consumer that's really taken center stage. Uh, so where everything is kind of viewed as what can we do to promote individual choice and efficiency for the consumer and not really recognizing a lot of the the structural deficits that consumers face when they're confronting, you know, the activities of businesses in the marketplace.
1: Do you get any sense that the attitude is different in Europe, in the European context? I I don't know how much you know about the European context, but um, I mean, uh, this is where I live. So I guess my day-to-day sense is that there is a there seem to be quite a lot of attempts to regulate and manage marketing and the information that's pushed towards consumers. And I'm wondering if there's a, a contrast between the jurisdictions.
0: I I think there is. There is, uh, you know. So uh, we can see a lot of this in kind of the attitude towards online uh, platforms and you know a willingness in Europe to create this new right to be forgotten, um, uh, more willingness to police what advertisers can say you know i saw recently that the uk has set new standards for not allowing the use of kind of these blatant sexual stereotypes in advertisements and you know that's something that you know from a perspective is very unfortunate that in the united states system there'd be no attempt to 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 stop that with an actual kind of government uh, regulatory mechanism so there 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 is a difference i think and there's and there's a more of a willingness to uh, Use the government to restrain certain advertising activities. Um, at the same time, though, I think that that um, it's a difference in degree, and the techniques and the overall movement of ad creep I discussed in the book is very much happening in you know other
1: parts of the world, other Western democracies. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about the two senses of creepiness then that, that kind of motivate the book. So the the first one is this notion that advertising has moved into new spaces, or I think this phrase is yours, that it's it's begun to colonize new spaces, both public and private spaces. And th- th- this seems to me like it's the core of the book, the core of the thesis. And you identify some fairly remarkable, and to me anyway, alarming examples of this creep. So could you give examples of, of, of how advertising has moved into... Both public and private spaces that were previously free from advertising. Sure, let
0: let me t- talk, uh, start talk about talking about the the public space colonization of public space. So one example of that would be advertising in schools, and I don't want to imply that advertisers never had an influence in public schools, but it's occurring in a much higher level now, at least in the um, in the United States. So we have advertising on the sides of school buses we have naming rights being auctioned off for high school athletic fields uh, there's even been instances where pizza hut or mcdonald's have had their logos stamped on kids report cards corporate logos are put on student athlete jerseys uh, there's an institution called channel one which donates televisions and uh, dvrs to schools um, but the catch is is that um, and they show a news program, but the catch is that within that news program, there's several, There's a lot of time that's devoted to advertisements that the kids are supposed to supposed to watch. And I could go on, but you know, this, I think the schools is a particularly powerful example of advertising colonizing what was once a, a commercial free or at least commercially resistant
1: space. Yeah, in terms of then the um, private spaces that are uh, new private spaces that have been colonized.
0: Yeah, so uh private spaces and uh, we can think of a bunch of examples. I, I love the one you relayed from Matthew Crawford's book uh, about the you know uh targeting their attention while they're waiting for the credit card transaction to occur, but there's others. So uh ads on seatback tray tables on airplanes. Uh there's talking urinal cakes that confront bar patrons. There's uh dynamic product placements in immersive video games and movies and television, advertisements on those, even if we purchase the movie or purchase the um, video game, uh, those things are, you know, connected, you know, online. And so advertisements can be updated as you're playing, you know, uh, uh, months, even years later. There's also the things that force us to, to pay attention in captive spaces. So ads on elevators, ads on, gas station pumps um, so there's less and less moments for quiet contemplation without being sold to and so i think that you know they're they're different and so we can talk about the differences between public space and private space but overall it just means that there's uh, I, this this colonization of territory that's crowding out other perspectives
1: yeah and i think actually the most obvious examples of this to me, at least on a day-to-day basis, are just online spaces, how, how they are effectively dominated by advertising and how you have to wait to watch videos just to read an article or look at a, a YouTube video or whatever the case may be. So there is uh, a, a very clear colonization of, of online space by advertising. It, it is effectively an advertising medium really in, in many ways. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, the YouTube is a great example. And Tim Wu talks about this in the attention emergency. You mentioned that book, but uh, when we think about this colonization, um, it's a colonization of our time in some ways too. And and sometimes we're forced to watch a thirty second commercial before we can watch a 30 second clip that we wanted to see on, on YouTube. So as much as we might grouse about ads during our television programs, the the net amount of advertising we're exposed to online in some ways is much greater than what we experienced before.
1: Yeah, and I mean, actually, I think I noticed on YouTube more recently, and I don't know if this is a new feature, but you used to be allowed to effectively skip an ad after five seconds, which was interesting then because it created a pressure on advertisers to do something really remarkable in that first five seconds to force you to pay attention for a bit longer or encourage you to pay attention for a bit longer. And I I was interested to see how that arms race was playing out. But now it seems that they force you to watch a full-length ad almost more frequently than allowing you to do the five-second skip. But again, I don't know if that's a, a new feature or something they're testing
0: I think uh, just on the on the YouTube, I think there's a constant kind of uh, judging of, of metrics, how we respond to these things. And so, you know, um, you know, there's the, I'm sure they're refining. OK, well, just how much can we force people to put up with before they'll, you know, they'll back out or they'll quit or they won't even watch the video in the first place? But because, of course, YouTube wants us to watch. So they can charge more for uh, for advertisers to advertise their their products. So I think there's, you know, a constant assessment of how much will we take and so maybe we were allowed to skip the ads at first but now that we've kind of been conditioned to oh i know i have to go through at least five or ten seconds of watching an ad before i can watch my youtube clip you know then well now maybe i'll sit through 30 seconds because i've conditioned to already accept the 10 seconds
1: yeah and we'll come back to some of the technological aspects of this a bit later on because those are really fascinating and important the thing i wanted to follow up with that question but the, the the move of advertising into new public and private spaces is why has this been allowed to happen? And you you do tell a story or have a set of arguments about why this has uh, been encouraged or facilitated. So uh, why is this?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a collection of things. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll just try out a couple. You know, so I think one you know one response is that well, it's part of a more general trend towards privatization, you know, uh, a cultural shift that suggests that well, what's so sacrosanct about these public spaces? Why not why not turn them over to to advertisers? Uh, some of it's just kind of path dependence, so I don't want to get into the, the legal weeds too much. But at least in the United States story, uh, there was a case filed in the 1970s by Ralph Nader, the famous consumer advocate, actually saying, well, consumers have a First Amendment right to be exposed to advertising. There was a law that tried to prevent pharmacies from advertising. The price Price of uh, prescription items and he fought against that and won the Supreme Court but opened sort of a Pandora's box and now it's the businesses that use this commercial speech First Amendment right just to, to handcuff regulators when they want to do things to limit or or alter uh, the flow of, of advertising so some of that's kind of path dependence but I also think this is a general disciplinary project uh, conducted by advertisers. And we can talk more about that if if you want. But this, you know, this is a constant struggle. Advertisers push and consumers push back, um, but it's also a technological arms race and consumers over, over history have needed some legal backstop to help them as advertisers leverage new technologies. And I think what's going on now is that this push by advertisers as they've used new technologies Has helped them with this disciplinary project they've been able to put more advertising into these spaces maybe without us realizing it um while they make it seem normal while they make it seem like other people are responsible and so i think that is is in large part the reason for the success of ad creep at this particular moment
1: yeah i mean there are two questions i just want to ask here on this this um one on, on the colonization of public spaces, so the, the trend towards privatization is clearly one aspect of this. Is there another aspect here where it's just like a withdrawal of funding or there are funding problems for public institutions and so they rely on these partnerships with commercial enterprises more and more and one of the conditions of that, part of the Faustian bargain, so to speak, is to allow and facilitate advertising on their premises?
0: So I'm skeptical of that explanation. I think that's that's responsible to a degree. uh, But you know, the 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 thought that somehow, well, it's cash-strapped schools or cash-strapped cities that just don't have the money, so they have to enter into these um, agreements for naming rights or other things, uh, that's not really that true. Uh, it turns out that schools, you know, public schools in the United States don't make all that much money off this, but it's just a little bit extra money. And so I think that What it comes down to more is is more of a a cultural shift, more of a willingness to to say, well, this is okay. Or even maybe an even better way to put that is there's not as much recognition of a line between commercial and non-commercial activity, not much of a recognition of the line between the private and public spheres. And when you can't see that line anymore, then it doesn't seem objectionable to to sell off these public spaces to advertisers.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And this kind of, like, this leads to the other question I wanted to ask, which was about this idea of the commercial speech doctrine, but effectively that does introduce an equivalency between different kinds of, of speech that are being, or information that's being provided and in the public space. So there's no need to protect or view political speech or other kinds of speeches as somehow sacrosanct and different from, from commercial speech. Uh, it, it's all just speech and You know, it all gets um, added into the marketplace of ideas, so to speak.
0: Yeah, that's that's been a big change, you know, until about um, well, really, until that that Ralph Nader case I mentioned in the 1970s, uh, there was an idea that commercial speech had next to no value at all. The government could come in and regulate that without violating the Constitution because it was of a fundamentally different character than than political speech. But. Then we see a weakening of that with courts saying, well, no, commercial speech does have some value. I mean, we live our lives in a consumer society. It's a large part of who we are. So we need to offer some protections against government overreach, against commercial speech. But at the same time, we're going to say that commercial speech is different. It's not as important. It's really not as important as political speech. So we'll give the government more latitude. But what we've seen over the past couple decades is less and less respect of that line between commercial and non-commercial speech, uh, more and more importance being placed towards uh, commercial speech, arguing that not only that consumers have a right to to hear commercial speech, but even the the corporate speakers themselves have some sort of almost spiritual right to to speak to 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 say these things. And we've seen this in a bunch of decisions, you know, involving campaign finance or or corporations' abilities to to um, you know voice their religious convictions. And so it, it really shows, like you said, this line between political speech and other kinds of speech eroding, you know, so that we can't really point to much of a difference anymore.
1: Yeah. And so this is one of the questions I wanted to ask a bit later on. So I'm just going to ask it now, which is about the corrupting effect this has on on political discourse. So my general feeling about this, and I don't know if I have a well-worked out argument is that this is, this is a bad thing because it's contributing to a general corruption of politics and the notion that everything's for sale that the public space is no longer a sacrosanct space there i think it has major impacts on the equality of participation in the public space it, you need maybe a corporate backing to actually get anywhere in in politics yeah so i'm, I'm worried about that corrupting effect on the public sphere do you agree with that or i mean should i be concerned about it or are there reasons to not be so concerned about it Yeah, I'm
0: I'm worried. I'm worried, too. So I think I I agree with you. Uh, I recently read a great piece by a communications scholar um, named Michael Serrazio. And what he did is he interviewed all these political consultants and and got their their feelings for what was important in political campaigns. And this is from a United States perspective, but my guess it would apply all over the place. And what the interviews revealed is um, a belief that, well, we we need to sell a candidate just the way we would sell, you know, laundry detergent. And the way we deal with voters is we need to rely on principles of branding and particularly developing emotional connections with the candidates. Uh, and and that comes at the cost of um, – not even nuance but even articulating policy positions much better to just kind of have these these emotional vague connections with candidates that don't involve anything you could kind of point to as well this person stands for this instead of instead of that and when the political consultants are queried about this they explain it as well it's just about um you know search costs and kind of the you know the attentional capabilities of voters. Um, there's only so much they can handle. So we have to rely on these emotional appeals to succeed. Um, so it's kind of a full-scale rejection of the idea of rational informed citizens that you would you would kind of expect, you know, to that you would need for a functioning democracy. So you know I, I see that as as Advertising principles and kind of this view of how we appeal to uh, people, um, uh, you know, having a you know, like you say a, a corrupting, a corrupting influence. And you know, in this most recent United States election, there's been a lot of discussion. You know, I think people are seeking an explanatory source for the outcome. And so there's been a lot of pointing to, well, it's surveilling techniques and sentiment analysis that have been perfected by advertisers in the commercial realm were used to successfully energize Trump voters and depress turnout for Clinton. And I think that's a little bit of a liberal conspiracy theory. It's not clear that that's what happened, but but it is disturbing, I think, to, to think about, you know, what's going on in the commercial realm kind of infecting the – the, the public realm, not just in the way I talked about with the, with schools and civic infrastructure, but in the actual way we appeal to the citizenry. You know, if if I can say one more thing uh, about that, you know, it's interesting. Your question is interesting to think about why is this more disturbing? You know, so my book is about ad creep, but I don't spend a lot of time talking about um, political appeals to voters. But why why is this theme more disturbing? And I, and I agree it is very disturbing. And I think that's because the consequences of a vote of external forces, you know, steering people, steering their voting decisions. Well, the consequences of that seem greater than the consequences of steering, um, how they make a purchase, you know, and I don't disagree with that. But I would also say that, you know, by taking over public spaces, by surveilling people at all times, by by something maybe we'll talk about late, later, leveraging brain science to make people buy things, um, you know, that's that's serious business too. Advertising shapes who we are. It's our sense of self. It's a lot of what we spend our time doing. So I think people say, oh, you know, the stuff with how we behave commercially is creepy. But let's focus on other things. And I think that 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 the how how this affects us politically is important, but it's also important just how we behave as commercial actors is an, is important, too, because that's such a big, a big part of you know, who we are and what we do.
1: Yeah, we'll move away from politics in a moment, but just one thing in what you said uh, that I think is important, this notion that you've you've got to sell a candidate using these emotional appeals effectively, and it's not based on substance, that mirrors and tracks a trend in advertising as well. I mean, if you look back at some of the adverts in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they are quite information-rich ads in many ways. Like, the information could be made up or fake, but they are... Text heavy lots of content to them and information, whereas now actually a lot of advertising is just emotional it's 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 sentiment based it's a brand you know brand marketing is about creating a a general aura or feeling around a particular product and not about telling you. The features it has no absolutely
0: right so if you if you like you said if you looked at ads in the early 20th century they were packed with information and sure some of them may have may have said you know it will cure baldness and cancer lumbago and all these things but a lot of them just talked about the the physical properties of the goods and the price and and you made your decision based on that and and now we move to this you know uh almost completely emotive connection. Um, And, and I think it's very scary to think of that happening with political candidates. You know, they're really turning political candidates into brands and brands are these, these, these kind of empty signifiers, right? They're, they're repositories for emotional connection without really offering us Information or or tangible aspects of, of products, and so um, to the extent that our politics is being changed into debates over brands, um, I, I think that's you know, like you said, it's corrupting. It's it's disturbing for uh, the you know, democratic values if we're having debates about emotional signifiers instead of debates about policy positions.
1: Another kind of main line of argument in your book about against this trend of ad creep, the this is the creepiness side of it, is the impact that advertising has on our ability to define ourselves or to determine our own identities. Could you maybe outline that argument that you have and, and why you think this is a, a bad thing?
0: Yeah. So uh, my starting point here is that we, we naturally fashion our identities based on the cultural materials around us. So live and work in Buffalo. So over the years, I've become a Buffalo Bills American football fan. And, you know, this kind of thing is inevitable we, um, as as we go through life. And so I think fairly uncontroversially that the more pervasive advertising is, the more it, it, it you know takes up our environment, the more it's going to shape us. And it's not necessarily all bad, partially because there's some diversity in advertising models that we can use to shape our identities from, partially because we are capable of repurposing some advertising materials, not using them in necessarily the same way as they were intended by the advertiser. You can think of the use of, of you know, brands and in, in parodies. You can think of um, kind of altering their meaning when you take, you take a kind of a mainstream brand and you put it on some sort of hipster T-shirt to use it ironically. So we are capable of, of some resistance. But at the same time, I think we have to realize that advertisers are constantly strategizing. They're strategizing. How can we influence our audience's attempts at self-definition? And this is getting back into this idea of advertising as a a disciplinary project. Foucault talked about instead of direct punishment, there is this shift to Disciplinary power and the idea that different entities can use disciplinary techniques to govern subjects without them realizing that they're being governed, that they're being influenced. And so I think you can see the same techniques that Foucault talked about with governments used by advertisers all the time, especially with so-called guerrilla advertising, which is really about injecting advertising into unexpected places. And, you know, just very briefly, uh, advertisers project certain norms for us to follow. They, you know, they direct ads us and they say, hey, this is you. And there's By saying that, by interpolating this vision of who you are, the consumer is, you naturally respond to that. And gradually that becomes more and more of how you think of yourself. And they also offer models not to follow. You know, here's the abnormal. You don't want to be like this. And that influences how we behave. At the same time, you know, a very important part, I think, to this whole story of modern marketing is hiding the advertiser's role, making this all happen Clandestinely, so planting memes, you know, online without us realizing they've been planted by a corporate force, or targeting uh, social media influencers without um, acknowledging that those media influencers have been paid for, and then the last thing is, uh, uh, you know, this process involves really circumscribing discourse. So we do have the potential to refashion these commercial messages, to repurpose them. But advertisers are very much engaged in limiting um, this definitional resistance. So campaigns that rely on user-generated content, they might seem very organic, they're bubbling up from consumers themselves, they reflect free choice, but they really have all sorts of rules to really narrow the way these presentations are released online. They're they're narrowed to reflect the, the brand owner's preferred model. And, and of course, you know, one thing that's part and parcel of all this is massive online surveillance. So our discourse about brands is monitored and responded to very quickly so that if there is a breach or an attempt to really turn around the story of you know, an advertising message about what it means to be a consumer of this particular product. Um, um, that's responded to. So again, I think it, it goes to to individual. You know, it goes it goes to these information asymmetries, and the advertisers have a lot more information on us than we do about them, and that's got to influence our, our 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 identity products, our attempts to 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 fashion our identities in the marketplace.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that general line of argument, but then the the critic or skeptic within me then wonders, like, how how bad is this, and how different is it compared to historical trends. So we've always defined ourselves by our interactions with our material culture, the world around us. And that material culture has in the past been controlled by other kinds of institutions. Tim Wu actually uses the example of religions as the original attention merchants to use his, his term controlling what we pay attention to and how we define ourselves. And historically the state has played a similar role. So I'm just wondering is there something different and special about the way in which advertising affects this process of self-definition that should make us extra concerned or is it just you know, part of a general need for eternal vigilance when it comes to these forces that impact on our self-definition?
0: Yeah, that, that's that's a, that's a great point. I guess what's really interesting about that to me is to think about how advertisers present a somewhat different model for self-definition than those other outside entities you mentioned, say religion or or the states. And so one thing about commercial messaging is it sends out a very, I think, mercenary, individualist message. You know, advertising is typically about the individual and not the community. You know, and in this way, it's very different from the collectivist messaging we might have heard from the church or the state, which no doubt influence our identities as well. You know, I think commercial messaging makes it harder for people to see the value in trying to come together in a civic-minded way. Instead, the message of advertising is "is you deserve it. You, the individual, deserve, deserve this. Buy yourself this treat. Um, you know, the, the other thing, and this is, you know, this might be a somewhat obvious point, but that the, to the extent that advertising is influencing our self does definition as opposed to these other forces, well, it's injecting a very materialist, materialist sensibility into things that arguably is different from religious imagery or state propaganda. You know, there, you know, part of the message might have been some urge to, to sacrifice. And of course, advertisers don't want us to deny ourselves anything. They want us to do the opposite of, of sacrifice. So I think, I think those are some lines of difference with these actors in the past and then thinking about, well, what are the consequences of this? Should we be more worried about what's happening now? Or is this, you know, is this a, is this a better devil to face than the influence of religion or, or the state in the past? And I guess what I would say is that, you know, I, I think your point about being vigilant has always been important. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of state propaganda or personally organized religion, but... I think people, you talk to other people and they'd say, oh, you know, I'm very grateful for this sense of patriotism that was instilled in me. That's part of my self-definition or, you know, the religious beliefs that were instilled in me. That's a, that's a very salutary influence on, on who I am. And you might have envisioned a place where these different external forces would balance themselves out. So we'd have the state and the church and the the family balancing each other out or offering a menu to select from. But the book is really about advertising Colonization project mean that we lose these competing perspectives. So, you know, as advertisers continue to take over public infrastructure, the state becomes less important. And even as as advertisers co-opt kind of our messaging with friends and family, well, those those uh, um, you know close social networks become less influential. And so, the concern I have is that advertising's colonization project would become the most important or the dominant external force that shapes who we are. And we want to have the balance of these other perspectives.
1: Yeah. And one thing that does make it very different perhaps nowadays is the technological side of this. And this is really another kind of key feature of your book. You go into a lot of detail on the technology of advertising and how we're being surveyed and how this is facilitating digital marketing. And this is a huge topic, but could you just give us a sense of like what's being done to command our attention and to push advertising to us through technology and through digital media
0: yeah so so I think the surveillance aspect is is crucial um, and the bottom line is there there's nowhere to hide, and I think a lot of people realize this, I would guess especially the listeners to your your podcast, John are very aware of this, um that we're all being tracked. But I think there's a general lack of awareness about the power to make connections between our different online trips. We know that if we go to one site, we're tracked, and if we go to another site, we're tracked. But I don't think there's as much of a realization that all these online trips and activities are are bundled together so our website visits our social media posts the photos we post online even our physical movements um, are are tracked using gps and they're all part of a picture that brings us into sharper relief for the advertiser and of course the, the the better you know your disciplinary subject the greater power you have over them and you know, so we can think, well, maybe I would just avoid these these, uh, these kind of, you know, I'll avoid surfing the web and being tracked that way. But even things that I think seem more innocent, reading e-books, you know, using video streaming services, you know, all these services collect data that can be used for more targeted appeals. Can I, can I
1: just things? jump in? Sorry, one yeah. point you make there, which I think is important to underline. One of the reasons why we don't understand or realize that all this information is being knitted together is that there are these entities, these data brokers, and I should know their names. Some of these companies, maybe you can remember their names, but um, they they play a very critical role in digital marketing and, and advertising, and they are effectively like non not in the public sphere at all. Like, I don't think again the fact that I don't even know their names. I know Facebook and I know Google, but I don't remember the. The digital uh, information brokers who kind of knit together all our digital footprints.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So like Axiom is, that, is yeah, the name that, of, it, one of the, it, yeah. The, yeah, one of the really big ones I can I can think of. when you look at the 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 number of people they have files on and the the extensive nature of those files, it's incredible. You know, virtually every American, and I'm sure the supplies for um, residents of other countries too, there's a file that Axiom has on them. And and like you said, it knits together all these different trips to these different together. And, you know, there's a, a, there's a tremendous power in being able to aggregate all this information. It it lets you know the the subject on a much better level than if you just cataloged, you know, their visits to one website. So, you know, that's that I think that really changes um, how, how advertisers know us, how they can influence us. You know, the other part of this is, just the, um, the laws of big data, right? So, so much information is being collected that even if you try to have very little known about you, so much is being collected by everyone else that they can make predictions about you based on very little information because they can correlate, you know, two or three data points that you've allowed to be transmitted out there, um, with, the, all the information they have on other people. Um, so it's getting harder and harder to, to hide, you know, um, and it's it's really it's really impossible to avoid being tracked. You know, I try to use some things, but you know, the technology is getting better and better at decoding who we are um, when we use online technologies. You know, so I read something recently about how people can be tracked just by the the unique number of fonts that they download in their browser when they surf online it turns out that's not standardized it's very different from computer to computer or even the unique speed at which your laptop loses a charge that that's a personal identifier that can be used to pinpoint your ip address and and to find you you know so maybe you were able to stay off the grid for you know one trip but then your next online trip they say oh it's the same laptop it's marks laptop i know who he is I'll contact Axiom and we'll immediately have an online auction to send an ad to him that's, you know, calibrates him at a very, very personal level.
1: I mean, one thing there that's important in what you said is, as well, I think, is that the fact that they can create these personalized profiles, that that's really part of what plays into this ideology underlying how advertising impacts our process of self-definition, this mercenary and individualist ideology that you alluded to earlier on. And so I just wanted to to, to emphasize that out of what, what you just said. The other thing then that's critical about this, this digital panopticon is how it, in a sense, hides in plain sight. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I'm aware of surveillance. I know that it's happening. At an intellectual level, I know it's happening. But when I go browsing web pages and checking my Facebook feed, I'm not... I'm not that aware that everything I'm doing, every click I make, how long I'm spending on the page, how long I'm looking at something when I'm reading an ebook. I'm not. I'm not really that emotionally aware, I think, of that being constantly monitored. It's not like Amazon sends me a, a warning saying, just, just so you know while you're reading this page, we are figuring out how long you're taking to read this book and we're looking at all the kinds of books that you like and the ones that you spend more time on and we'll use that to push you other books that you will like in the future. I know it's happening, but but it's not. I'm not constantly reminded of it, and this is actually what part of what makes this digital surveillance so valuable to marketers. And you go into that in in your book. So maybe you could explain that. Why is that hiddenness so valuable?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, so. Market researchers have always had this problem and that they want to understand compu- uh, consumers better, but they need the consumer to get out of the way. And what I mean by that is that consumers self-reporting, you know, getting a bunch of shoppers in a room and asking them questions about the product or having them fill out a survey about advertising um, naturally distorted the picture of what was going on in consumers heads sometimes consumers lie out of embarrassment they don't want to admit you know what they really respond to in an ad sometimes they might give answers that just please the you know they're designed to please the people conducting the surveys other times we may not just be in in, in touch with what what's actually motivating us or, or causing us to respond to an advertisement so clandestine tracking Helps avoid that problem. You know, we're more truthful when we can't mediate our disclosures to advertisers, and so that's of that's of tremendous value, and that's part of the reason why we see so many resources being put into this this digital dragnet. Also, why we see advertisers so interested in brain science. This idea that somehow uh, uh, we can have our our brains, you know, read and are analyzed without. Um, us consciously influencing, you know, uh, or mediating how the how those results are being presented to market researchers.
1: Yeah, that's another one of the things that you go into in your book. And maybe maybe you could talk a bit about this trend towards neuromarketing and emotional appeals and sentiment analysis, like what's being done there. And one thing I do want to ask about that is like, how much of it is something that we should be or we should take seriously and be concerned about that, you know, this is maybe a type of, of brainwashing and how much of it is hype? Because my sense is that a lot of neuromarketing marketing is a, itself a victim of advertising hype.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, how much of it is hype? Let me, let me start with, with that. And that's, that's, that's been a hard question for me over the last couple of years. And I've been working on this and when I've wrestled with it, because like you say, a lot of the neuromarketers are advertisers themselves. And so they're naturally kind of pumping up their their capabilities here. And I'm not trained as a neuroscientist. And so, you know, it's you have to kind of look very carefully to see what's what's possible and and what's not. And there are clearly some some outright charlatans in the in the neuromarketing field I've I've discovered. Um, and the the other thing that makes it problematic from a research perspective is that businesses are naturally somewhat tight-lipped about this, about using neuroimaging technologies to design ads, um, partially because of intellectual property, trade secret concerns, but also because of the, you know, the creepiness factor we alluded to before, you know, consumers don't necessarily like the idea of of kind of having brain scan to determine how to make them most likely to be receptive to an advertisement. So that's not always celebrated. Still, I, I think at this point, I've covered enough evidence, at least to think that there is a there is a there, there, um, there. There's no doubt that the science has improved. So, just the processing speeds that are involved, being able to track now how people respond to advertising in real time, to measure what parts of the brain react to different stimuli, to, to see what are the, you know, what are the neural hallmarks. hallmarks what's the What's the you know the the signatures in the brain that show when particular emotions are being felt, or when someone is being presented with say their first choice brand, um, you know that's becoming you know not just uh, theoretical that's becoming actually possible today. So I th- I think there's 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 something, there's something there you know if 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 market researchers are able to see how rea- we react to advertising, and to continually fine tune their ability to see those reactions, there's there, there's a possibility to really leverage that to make more and more compelling advertising and when neuromarkers talk about this, and this don't i think really shows a real priority, not so much hype, they talk about targeting us emotionally you know they talk about figuring out cognitive vulnerabilities and and more generally like. Figuring out people's figuring out groups of people who are vulnerable, and particularly advertising to them. The focus isn't on making products better. Oh, here's how we'll make this better to appeal people emotionally. It's how to find our emotional susceptibilities and leverage those. You know, the the, the other thing I'd say is you know trying to think about how much of this is hype, how much of this is real, is that even if there's a lot of hype here, and I admit there is a lot of hype here, you know, brain science is not the point where it can tell us exactly what we're, we're thinking when we see see an ad, um, although it's getting closer and closer. But even if there's a lot of hype here, it influences the ads we see. You know, and this gets into this um, idea of environments and, and self-definition. Um, the more advertisers rely on Techniques like this, you know, brain scans and surveillance and less on focus groups and surveys, the more they're circumscribing what used to be a fairly robust discourse between consumers and advertisers. We used to have more pathways to talk back to influence, you know, the products we we are exposed to, the the advertising we see Um those are being cut off more and more. We don't have the opportunity to mediate, you know, and to influence advertisers as much. And then the other thing is that by bypassing the consumer's conscious desire to self present in a particular way to market researchers, neuromarketing, I fear, is 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 going to seize on our worst, you know, most base instincts. Um, So, you know, if we're if we're polled, you know, in an interview, we might not admit to, oh, I was really influenced by that. That appeal that was, you know, I was crude. It It was sexist. It was even racist. You know, we know enough given social norms not to admit to that. But if that seems to be what we respond to um, in a neuromarketing per- way, then that's what advertisers might might use in their ads. I have one example of this, if it's okay to, to share. Um, this is an ad for, for Cheetos, right? So the, the Frito-Lay, the company that owns Cheetos, the, the cheese puff snack food, scanned the brains of consumers and also conducted oral interviews with them. And what they what people complained about in the oral interviews is they said Cheetos are delicious but we don't like the orange dust that gets encrusted in our fingers you know that's that's a downside but in the the scans supposedly what was what was revealed is that people um, their brains lit up. There's a pleasurable sense uh, sensation from having the du- seeing images of the dust on people's fingers. You know, and you can hypothesize this took them back to childhood, or you know, a sort of this you know this this freeing idea of being transgressive, because when we're older, we're not allowed to have you know orange fingers. Whatever the reason is, and whether there's even rights, you know, whether, whether they even read the brain scans right, um, the folks at frito Lay took this information, changed their advertising strategy to one that really relied on kind of this anti-social campaign where the Cheetos mascot egged people on to do anti-social things. So, you know, they're at a public laundromat and the Cheetos mascot egged someone on to dump uh, these orange Cheetos into someone's pristine load of white laundry. There's another one where where the Cheetos mascot encourages an actor in the commercial who's supposed to represent kind of the everyman to mash some cheetos into the very tidy keyboard and and desk setup of a co-worker while they leave and critics you know didn't like these commercials they said they were antisocial and nihilistic when they pulled consumers they said they didn't like the commercials but cheetos said well the brain scans tell us to go in a certain direction and we will and you know at least if you believe um some reports it 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 goosed their sales so my guess is that they'll be even more receptive to the next neuromarketing study down the road
1: yeah that's a good example of of the influence and impact of neuromarketing irrespective of i guess whether it whether it's correct or, or like how that association between the pleasurable sensation and the the orange dust on your fingers arose. Um, Okay, so so to this point, we've been talking about advertising in a sense as an us versus them relationship, where it's the advertisers and there's us, the ordinary consumers. But one of the things that you talk about in relation to ad creep and something that I actually feel acutely myself all the time is that it's pushing us towards self-marketing and we're constantly in a process of selling ourselves. Now, maybe this is something that academics have always felt, but it seems to me that modern academia is largely centered around the notion of, of, of selling yourself and their various metrics for measuring how successful you are in selling yourself you know the number of downloads and citations and retweets or whatever the case may be so i i, I do feel myself to be in this constant process of, of self-marketing and i'm trying to figure out wh- why this is happening And also whether it's a bad thing. So I have a book on my shelves next to me as I speak to you called To Sell as Human by Dan Pink, which you probably are familiar with, which essentially argues that the persuasion and advertising are are part of what we do as human beings. Rather than being something sleazy, he views it as a, a, a key capacity or skill that all humans should have. And I have some sympathy with that idea. Because we are social animals, and we do have to persuade our peers and position ourselves within social hierarchies and social groups. And I'm not sure that we could ever escape that dynamic. That said, I do feel frustrated at the demand or requirement for constant self-marketing at the moment. So I'm hoping maybe you could help me to understand and figure out my frustration with this. So, so why, why is this happening? Why are we constantly being pushed to self-marketing? And is it a bad thing?
0: Yeah. Well, let me begin by by as a fellow academic, you know, I, I share your kind of concern or or worry about, you know, a push to to kind of uh, persuade and 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 present and win over followers um, today. You know, I, I you know I have a bunch of kind of baby boomers who are on our, my faculty here and they'll kind of. Talk to me and sort of shake their heads and be like, "Yeah, we, you know, I never had to, to, to go to these lengths, you know, before to, to sell myself and my work." It's sort of just people, people noticed it on, on their own. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But we do see all these kind of metrics for, for academic measurement now that I don't think existed, at least in such a, kind of a quantified and perhaps as comprehensive manner. Um, you know, in the in the in the past, of course, we've always tried to persuade people. Of course, we've always c- kind of tried to to sell ourselves. You know, that's I, I think you're right. That's part of being being human. And, you know, in the book, I talk a little bit about uh, the sociologist Irving Goffman and how he analyzed people who were uh, going to a cocktail party and kind of changing their, their entire manner, depending on which circle they sort of rotate to which people they talk to. And he said, well, they're, they're like actors in a play. And you might think, oh, that seems so fake. That seems so non-genuine. But to Goffman, you know, he said, well, this is just part of being human. It's part of kind of experimenting with different identities. It's, it's, it's part of being a social animal, you know? So, so I agree with you that, that, you know, persuading and selling yourself you know by itself is is not not objectionable I, I think what's different now and what maybe want to try to think about it hard and talk about in the book is that there is it's now we're confined by these digital architectures in which we're doing the persuading now and these digital architectures have a couple features that I think change the manner of our, our self presentation. So one is is that there's quantification possible quantification of our social relations in a way that just wasn't possible before, and Quantification has consequences when you could put a number on something, I think that changes how people uh behave so the the type of self presentation is is different you know before you might have wanted to persuade followers or colleagues of something, but we weren't trying to gain numbers in the same way. We weren't trying to gain a mass of of followers, but now we have kind of the gamification of our interpersonal contacts. So we're, you know, we're trying to win likes or those hearts you can get on Twitter. Um, You know, it's, it's kind of an an addictive game as, you know, Adam Alter would talk about in his, his, his recent book, Irresistible. Um, And then at the same time, there's a commodification thanks to this numerification, which means we can actually Put a money, um, monetary value, on it, and, and I don't think that was possible to the same way before. You know, so now we have social influencers who are paid to peddle products to their contacts. You know, even their their friends. And you don't have to be a social influencer with millions of followers. You can have a very meager following. And because of this numerification, it's enough to get you in, in the action. You, get a little, you can get a little bit of money for it or you know, a, a free product or something like that. So we can behave like the celebrity end, endorser if we're not getting paid to the same degree. And so I think that can be corrupting right? Um, This isn't always open. It's not always transparent. Um, And even though we've always tried to sell or or even though we've always tried to persuade people and to make ourselves look good in other people's eyes, I think there were also moments we could let our guard down. and We'd say, well, this is a relationship with family or friends where I'm not expecting to be sold to. And and the numerification of all this, you know, the ability to analyze our social graphs and see how much they're worth, um, potentially turns what was traditionally a non-commercial sphere of activity into a commercial one. So I worry about that. And then another aspect of this digital architecture, I think, um, that's changed the rules of the game is that unlike the Goffman example of us kind of uh, slightly changing who we are as we navigate through this cocktail party. You now, these platforms that we use today, that to converse and to convince and to present ourselves today, really discourage the maintenance of multiple online profiles. And and in that sense, they're the opposite of Goffman's cocktail party. We have to maintain one face for everyone. You know, so, you know, you're only supposed to have one identity on Facebook, and Facebook discourages multiple accounts and if we want to build followings, um, then we don't want to dilute our brands by having multiple accounts across different platforms. We just want to have one. So, you know, the the social media researcher Dana Boyd talks about how we're, well we're constantly broadcasting to one audience, not many. We're not we're not kind of disaggregating them. We're constantly broadcasting to one audience. She calls our super publics, and we know it's you know it's it's kind of uh, it's, it's a broad based appeal. We're not quite sure how big it is, who all is going to see that post on Facebook or Twitter. Um, but we know we're broadcasting to that. And I think that changes how we might present and persuade in a different way than in, in the past.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, that all rings true to me as, um, the feature of, of, of this modern self-marketing trend. Uh, I mean, one aspect of it that I also, I, mean, I don't know if you will agree or disagree with this but uh, part of this I think is bound up with the, the move towards more precarious forms of employment the, you know, the so called gig economy the, so because we're, we, we require or we're, we don't have permanent stable forms of employment anymore I mean some of us do but they're becoming less and less common so we're in this state of economic anxiety perpetually so we're kind of forced into constantly selling ourselves as well we can never be off.
0: Yeah, the structures that we work in today mean that we have to look for the next the next option. I think that's that's part of it, and uh, and I think the other thing you, you mentioned precarity. You know, it's it's our, our you know maybe our jobs aren't as are as stable. Um, just the nature of those jobs are different because of the gig economy and other things, but also because we kind of have this this permanent record. Um, that 's being fixed from our self presentations online um, we 're susceptible to more um, more more disruptions more more things happening more things you know coming to bite us from the the past so you can think of different phenomena from you know um, credit scoring based on what you say online to being denied job opportunities from what you say online to you know revenge porn to just commercial profiling from everything we disclose online so on the one hand we 're constantly goaded to disclose and self-promote, but on the other hand, you know, those disclosures, which are grist for, you know, commercial appeals, can also end up, you know, being very problematic for us in the future because it's difficult to to uh, erase them or get them behind us as time goes on.
1: Yeah, so on that uh, depressing note, I think uh, we <laughs> we have to, maybe we just, this is going to be unfair to you because I know you have an entire chapter in the book about it, but what can we do to, to stop this? What would be the the key points you think any policymaker or individual should should take away about how to ameliorate or reduce the impact of ad creep?
0: Yeah, and I'll I'll try to be brief here. Right, so I think the first thing is awareness. So these things start appearing in in starker relief and less as just kind of unthreatening background noise. The more you're aware of them, so. I I think it's hard to take all of this seriously until you start noticing it in your in your daily life. Um, Then once I think people start noticing it, then we can start getting public support for legal prohibitions. And one thing that I feel strongly about and try to tease out a bit in the book is that we – You know, and this goes to the idea of, well, how do we view consumer agency and the capability of the government? Um, When is the government being too paternalistic when they restrict our choices when it comes to advertising? And I just think that a lot of these things need to need to be dealt with with flat out. Legal prohibitions, saying no to certain selling strategies, certain surveillance techniques. Um, I, th- I think that w- you know, there's there's too many kind of um, structural barriers and 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 difficulties in trying to resist. Some of these things, whether the choice to, you know, opt into surveillance or not, or, or, you know, trying to avoid, you know, some of the areas where we advertising enters our lives. We need, we need prohibitions. Um, the objection to this is paternalistic, but I think what I would argue is that So much of this is clandestine. You know, maybe we're worried about the government saying it knows what is better for us than we do. But we should also worry about advertisers suggesting they know what's better for us than we do. And the more that advertisers hide what they're doing and replace dialogue with these other techniques of market research, they're really trying to influence us in a somewhat paternalistic way as well. And they just don't always have a clear, you know, they always have an agenda that's in our self-interest. So we need rules to to, to stop some of this activity, and going back to the history, that's what ha- has happened in the past. You know, too many billboards. You know, filled up on highways when the automobile was introduced. There were rules stopping the spread of billboards. Um, you know, too much false advertising. In a world where suddenly we had mass-produced goods and we couldn't interrogate local merchants about where those goods came from, we had new rules requiring regulation of food and drugs and cosmetics. So I just think we need you know um, rules that can help app, you know, help consumers um, in their negotiation with advertisers, because the, the pendulum, I think, is tipped too much to one side at this point.
1: Okay, Mark, I think we will leave it there. I know there's more to be said about this topic, but for those who are interested, I do recommend reading your book. It's a really great read and has lots of alarming information in it and interesting arguments and ideas. And I'll I'll be sure to include a a link to it on, on the show notes for the podcast. So yeah, just thanks for joining me for the conversation.
0: Thanks, John. This was fun.